0: Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate.
1: Welcome back everyone to Talk Dizzy to Me. Today we're joined by two very special guests for an episode all about vestibular anatomy. I am pleased to announce our first guest. Dr. Taishido, Michael Taishido, out of the state of Delaware. It's my understanding that he got into both the ear and vestibular disorders in general, perhaps due to a little bit of family history. So I'm going to hand it off to you, Dr. Taishido. Taishido. Thank you.
2: I've been educating the world about my name uh, my whole life. So <laughs> no problem. i Uh, So I am a neurotologist. I'm in Wilmington, Delaware, and I have uh, teaching appointments at Thomas Jefferson University and at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I grew up in Delaware and uh, got into ear problems because of otosclerosis, a hearing problem, which runs in my family. And um, so that created a latent curiosity uh, that after um, seeing my first stapedectomy uh, as a third-year medical student. Uh, created a defining moment that I just said, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'm going to do that. And so I followed um, uh, otology as my training track in otolaryngology. And after finishing a fellowship in otology, I realized that I really didn't know very much about how to treat dizzy patients. Because in the era in which I trained, uh, all patients with Uh, dizziness had vestibular neuritis or Meniere's disease. We did a lot of vestibular nerve sections on patients, and we did a lot of sac surgery on patients. These are operations that are rarely done today. Um, Our understanding of vestibular disorders has changed dramatically, and the tools which we use to treat patients with vestibular disorders Uh, and the teams of people involved in their care have changed dramatically, and all that has happened um, in my practice lifetime. Uh, So um, I have dug in to become the best practitioner I could uh, in my um, region uh, for my fellow Delawareans, Um, and um, if you haven't noticed, the small state of Delaware has some newly prominent people (laughs) <laughs> and um, we are uh, um, uh, and and I uh, enjoy uh, teaching what I've learned and I have a special interest in visual explanations and the vestibular system lends itself um, quite well to visual explanations so in my um, hobby as a teacher I um, have taken a lot of pleasure in creating uh, you know videos and uh, and images that help to drive home vestibular concepts so it's a pleasure to be here
1: Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you giving up your precious time to help educate
3: both us and our audience today. We're really excited to have you here. I mean, your reach definitely goes far beyond Delaware and actually into my own clinic. I use a lot of your videos on vestibular migraine and even the article that you co authored with Dr. John Carey on migraine to educate my patients. And you are fantastic at explaining things in a great way for people to understand. So we're very lucky to have you here today. And we are also joined by the one and only Jeff Walter. If you listen to our podcast, you've heard him on a few other episodes. He is the director of the Otolaryngology Vestibular Imbalance Center at Guy Singer Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania. Uh, he teaches a lot of weekend courses. He's involved with some great um, clinical research, including the new Loaded Dix Hall Pike study, which is blowing up and amazing. Uh, so Jeff, welcome back. Thanks for being here with us.
0: Thanks, I'm happy to be here.
1: Jeff, I have to tell you, I've had so many prior clinicians that I work with tell me, Oh my gosh, your episode on the loaded dicks hall tech. That's all I do now. So well, well, you're famous. That's good.
0: that's good to hear. Well, that wasn't <laughs> yeah, old, but that's nice.
2: No, we do it in our clinic too. That's great. Oh, good. Great.
0: It's good to hear. Right, well, shall we get started with our questions?
2: Yes, yeah, so you put together right.
0: a, a good
3: a, a good amount of great questions to ask, so let's get rolling on those.
0: Okay, so I'll ask some questions and then we'll have some dialogue. Um, so the first question I had, uh, Dr. Teixeudau is, would you describe the semicircular canals as truly orthogonal? Is the diameter of the canals symmetric throughout? Would they be torturous or smooth? Um, so could you make some comments on that from your studies on anatomy?
2: Sure, I think that there are some general concepts about the uh, anatomy of the labyrinth and the orientation of the two labyrinths on the right and the left in space to one another, some of which are conventional wisdom that is very accurate and some is not very accurate. Um, For example, that we know that the posterior lateral and anterior canals are orthogonal to one another. And this seems to be very true. Uh, Within just a few degrees these canals, uh, canal planes uh, describe the sides of a box uh, and they converge, that box has a corner um, against which those planes are um, opposed. And we call that surgically the solid angle actually, when we are drilling bone in the solid angle, it's one of the riskiest places to uh, remove disease in chronic ear disease. The um, One of the misconceptions about the labyrinth anatomy, however, is that the two labyrinths are perfectly uh, aligned along 45 degree angles to one another. So we think that the two posterior canals are 90 degrees uh, from one another. And actually, they're not. They're actually a little closer than 90 degrees. Um, They're um, about. Uh, 80 degrees uh, from one another, and uh, because and the anterior canals have been pushed apart, not 90, but closer to 105 degrees mm-hmm. from one another. It's almost as though as the neocortex grew in man, it it pushed the um, anterior canals apart and the posterior canals together a little bit. Now. Mm-hmm. We still have RALP and LARP pairs. That's left anterior, right posterior, and right anterior, left posterior canal pairs that function well uh, together, uh, even though they're not perfectly aligned with one another. And that's because the um, the um, activity of the semicircular canal along its plane um, is. it can be described best uh, using a tangent function. It doesn't change very much, so long as you're within a range of angles, but then it falls off rather dramatically after you get to a critical angle off of the canal plane. So even though you would think that this expansion of the neocortex and the realignment of the labyrinths would have um, distorted the functioning of of the vestibular system, um, it hasn't very much. Now, another interesting point is that we all think of the, um, uh, we talked about the anterior and posterior canals being paired together, but the lateral canals we know are paired and that we always are aware that they are angled upward in a forward direction about 30 degrees. Well, it turns out that they're really angled upwards about 25 degrees. Not very much difference, but it is different from the universal teaching that has existed. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, final thing that I think that no one really pays attention to is that those lateral canals are actually elevated from medial to lateral from one another, like the wings of a jumbo jet, so that the non-ampulated ends of the canals are the lowest end and the ampulated ends are the highest end. This means that the lateral canals, which are the easiest to load, in when we're talking about otolith disease, are those which self-empty the easiest as well. And that's important because we do see some patients who say, who describe a single episode of vertigo on sitting up in the morning, but they never have it in the clinic. They never have it the rest of the day. And that single episode they experience is the first unloading of their lateral canal. So that's a sort of um, a um, pseudo-orthostasis, I call it, uh, when patients come with that uh, story. So those are some observations. Now, in terms of the diameters of the semicircular canals. Now I'm going to change uh, the terminology here because we have three bony semicircular canals, but all of the the membranous labyrinth and otolith disease uh, with which we're concerned and the vestibular system really uh, is defined by the anatomy of the semicircular ducts, Uh, the membranous, slender membranous ducts, which are contained within the semicircular canal. So while the semicircular canal is a broad conduit about two and a half millimeters in diameter, attached to the outer wall of that conduit is the slender one millimeter diameter semicircular duct. So we have an anterior semicircular duct, a lateral semicircular duct, and a posterior semicircular duct. Now these ducts are of uniform diameter except at the am- where they dilate to the ampulla and except where they converge in the case of the posterior and anterior ducts. They converge to form the common cruce. Now the common cruce has a very unusual formation. It has a dilation. So there, it's not consistent in diameter. So here's a model um, of the labyrinth that is printed off of a histologic model, and you can see that the common crus is is has a, 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 a is broad, but then it has a belly, and then it narrows again. Hmm. And this actually, if you you can imagine, uh, this green is the posterior canal. Uh, this swelling. Um, will actually act a little bit as a trap and make it harder for otoliths to load the posterior canal. It can be protective. Mm. <laughs> At least this has never been described formally, but this is my observation and my thought on this observation, that this dilation of the common crus may be a protective adaptation to prevent loading of the posterior duct, the mm. most um, uh, the most difficult um you know, and common uh, and problematic variant of BPPV. There are some other variants as well, and we'll get to those. But I think that covers your question.
0: What, um, just another takeoff from that is, if you were going to compare the diameter of the area of um, the ampulated portion of the canal to the, you know, the the uh, capillary-sized duct, what's the difference, like, from a racial perspective between the two? Like,
2: Oh, you know I can't. How divide. wide
0: is the ampulla? I guess is what. I
2: mean. How, how yeah. wide is
0: the ampulated portion of the
2: canal? Yeah, the ampulla is, um, you know, closer to, um, you know, th- two and a half uh, millimeters wide. As it's as wide as the semicircular canal. So the ca- semicircular canal, the bony canal, uh, is about two and a half millimeters, and the ampulla of the semicircular uh, duct um, swells to fill it.
0: Okay, cool, that's that's okay.
2: And, and then, of course, it's par- partially the ampulla is occluded by the crista, mm-hmm. which is a saddle shape, and then completely occluded by the cupola, which is not a trigger which flops back and forth like a light switch, it's actually attached circumferentially and on the kinocilium of the saddle of the crista and moves back and forth, billowing like a small spinnaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: thank you, that's very really
2: helpful. And then finally, the last anatomic uh, change that I want to um, uh, bring up is the um, fact that each of the canals is like a long, has about the proportion of a bicycle tire, long and slender, kind of like a 10-speed bicycle tire. But imagine that you took it and you bent it. And so each canal has this bent bicycle tire configuration. We call it a, a bicycle tire or a donut or a bagel is a toroid. And scientifically, we call this a bent toroid shape. And why is that? Important. Well, it's important because uh, we think that that bent toroid shape um, allows a um, responsiveness of the of this vestibular organ over a slightly broader range of angles than would a perfectly flat canal. We uh, and as when we talk about lateral canal I'll talk about how that bent toroid shape has an extraordinary clinical significance in separating out our patients with lateral canalithiasis into this geotropic and ageotropic forms, but we'll get to that.
0: Good, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Next question. Can you, from, and maybe you can briefly describe how you discern this. Could you describe the angle that each cupula sits at within each semicircular canal? Because I think that's helpful for therapists to know in managing BPPV, especially the angle of the cupula within the horizontal and posterior canal.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, We have a, um, these are, uh, I think, uh, important and very specific uh, points of anatomy. And we generally believe that Oh, the posterior canal cupula is at the bottom of the canal. So, if you're looking at a clock, you imagine it's at six o'clock. Well, it's not. It's actually elevated about thirty degrees anterior to the six o'clock position, toward the utricle. So, the the ampulla and the crista and cupula associated with it are not at six o'clock. They're at seven o'clock, that's 30 degrees forward. Eight o'clock would be 60 degrees, that's too far. Now, mm-hmm. what's the reason for that? Well, it makes it um, quite possibly more difficult for cupulolithiasis to mm-hmm. occur in the posterior canal. Uh, whether it is from the utricular side or on the um, canal side, um, this is a protective position for the crista and the cupola. In the lateral canal, if the patient is lying down and you're looking at their lateral canals from the top of the head down, we have this idea in our mind that the crista and cupola is directly anterior. Uh, So at the, say at the 12 o'clock position, directly upright, but it's not, it is about, three to four minutes um, to the, toward the midline on each side. And this goes against conventional teaching. People thought it was in fact the other way that to get the right cupola vertical, you had to turn the head to the left. And if to get the left cupola vertical, you had to turn the head to the right. But now with infrared lenses, We have patients with cupula lithiasis and we can verify so clearly where the null point is. And we know that it's about somewhere between six and 10 degrees um, to the right to get the right cupula perfectly vertical and to the left to get the left cupula perfectly vertical. Now the anterior canal, um, we have a lot of questions about. Um, we don't have clinical verification of the angle of the anterior canal. And if you have a case, anyone, anyone listening, if you have a case that you've recorded and you really believe it's anterior canal canalothiasis, please send it because um, it probably exists, but it may be a transient phenomena and uh, gets habituated away very quickly. Um, but um, we don't have good Um, a a good impression of exactly what the angle is and where in the crista it sits. Now, how could that be possible? How could it be possible that we just don't know where it is with all of the uh, histologic study Mm -hmm. and scanning electron microscopy and such? Well, it's because Mm -hmm. our standard histologic fixation techniques and the techniques used for scanning electron microscopy dehydrate the cupola and when we dehydrate it, it tears away from its attachment on the, on the anti-crista wall of the ampulla. And then you just see it as a blob contracted on top of the crista. And uh, I have in my own histologic reconstructions attempted to uh, just do a sight line down what I think is the midline of the, of the crista and then to reconstruct a cupola from there, but each reconstruction was so variable that it was um, not really adding up to anything that seemed like a good approximation. Mm -hmm. Finally, um, but in in general, we think that the um, anterior uh, uh, crista is probably somewhere um, a little bit um, above uh, uh, horizontal. The posterior canal, Um, uh, uh, as uh, we've already described, and the lateral canal. And uh, finally, the, the, uh, the alignment of the crista and of the cupola, we always think that the semicircular duct is going to come into it and run into it just like a wall, perpendicular. It's not. That wall, the crista, the wall created by the crista and the cupola is about 30 to 40 degrees off of perpendicular, so that the cristae are generally oriented in a more anterior direction than the uh, canal would tell you, and the reason for that is unclear. We can uh, speculate about it.
0: That's I amazing. would just comment. Yeah, I would just comment to the audience that boy, when you if you go to Google Images and you look at, um. How the canals are depicted as sitting in the skull and where the the cupula sits for each canal. There's so much variability in vestibular illustrations that you really can get misled. So um, it's important to realize where these structures actually sit.
2: Oh, absolutely. And that was one of the reasons that I developed the BPPV viewer. Um, Even the quality of illustrations in our scientific uh, journals Mm. is extraordinarily variable. And you get an illustration that looks like a plate full of um, macaroni and cheese uh, showing the semicircular canals. Um, um, it's very just descriptive in the, in the most general sense, but uh, having a model based on real anatomy, I think is gonna improve the quality of the conversations we have.
0: Just one more uh, comment. So if debris were loaded into the anterior canal, you would speculate that it would sit on top of the cupula, if I follow you
2: correctly. Uh, that it it might, yes, it should. Uh, my thought is that it that cupula may be protected in the overhang of the ampular swelling. Hmm. So I'm going to show the anterior canal here, and you can see that there the the, the otoliths wow. would would fall here and then uh, the crista is down low. And what if the cupola is, was more vertical than we thought? And that the um, otoliths don't really rest on the, on the cupola but they tend to go to the base of the crista instead. This would be a reasonable adaptation to prevent anterior canalothiasis from becoming a disabling event.
0: Okay, gotcha. Interesting. Thank you.
2: And also, and I've tested this a little bit because when we uh, put otoliths into this model and then turn it 30 degrees, head hanging, we know that clinically those otoliths fall. In the model, they don't. Those otoliths stay trapped in the swelling of the ampulla. Mm -hmm. But maybe they are actually uh, riding along the cupola and then falling out.
3: So would that be where the deep head hang, I, I, there was a uh, article that I had looked into with anterior canal cupuloth- or um, where they suggested doing a deep head hang in that situation where you overextend the cervical spine so that you can get a better result. Would that kind of support that theory?
2: Well, I think that um, deep head hang is what is necessary to get assurance of complete emptying of that distal end of the anterior canal. Uh, But I think uh, there may be some ways to uh, do some preparations by filling the uh, labyrinth with dye. And uh, I think that if we really focus on this question of the angle of the cupola, um, that this is not an unsolvable problem, especially with today's micro CT um, capabilities.
3: I think it's so amazing that we still have so much to learn about this organ, which makes this side of the specialty so exciting. Um, I mean, look how far the entire field has come in the last 40, 50 years. I mean, it's just it's mind blowing how much has changed. And even just learning so much more about the anatomy is important, especially when it comes to testing. You know, we, we can do a bow and lean test to determine um, involved side for a horizontal canal, either cupula or canalithiasis. And that all comes down to how that cupula is angled in the ampulated portions of the canal. So it's so important to know this, but it's also so amazing to me that we are still finding things out because it's been so hard to study, um, which makes all of your your work and research that much more exciting. So this, yeah. is, this is a cool, this is really cool that's, thing to talk about. That's and
0: interesting, the, Yeah. Go ahead, Abby.
1: I was just going to say that hearing the anatomical descriptions that we just did, it makes more sense to all of us and listeners than why we see more patients with posterior involvement versus horizontal versus anterior.
2: Right.
0: I mean, really, Danielle, in 25 years, I mean, I've been practicing for 25 years. And when I first came out, I can remember, you know, when I would educate primary care providers about BPPV sometimes their response was, is that real? <laughs> when you'd explain the mechanism to them, is that real? And you know, I can still remember talking to neurologists that refuse to accept that migraine could cause vestibular symptoms. And so that's just in a 20 year time period when you think about it. So the it, it field really has evolved. Uh, On to our next still
1: question. we're having those conversations, yeah. right? What's that? And sometimes we're still having those conversations.
2: <laughs> True. Well, Fortunately, then... a little less frequently. And then they finally accept that and you tell them that uh, a patient with migraine is seven and a half times more likely to have BPPV mm-hmm. than yeah. the current BPPV, and uh, then they take another step back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: do you feel like we are born with a specific number, like a finite number of otoconia, or is production ongoing? And what do you think likely happens to otoconia when they're loose? Um, Do they re-adhere to the otolithic membrane? Do they degrade over time? So can you comment on the the lifespan of an otocony?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, We know that uh, some um, organisms have a fixed number and they have a large otolith that is a permanent structure. Uh, We uh, know that there are uh, dissolved calcium in the labyrinth is very, that is uh, very um, low, practically unmeasurable. And so the loose otoconia that are in a, a semicircular duct um, may uh, slowly uh, lose their uh, lose their calcium uh, from the calcium carbonate into the endolymph uh, leaving behind the protein substrate. Only about 60% of the mass of an otoconia is actually mineral. The remaining is protein matrix, mm-hmm. otoconins, which are secreted by the vestibular hair cells in the macula. Uh, we know that there tends to be a, um, it, it looks, there appears to be a pattern of maturation of otoconia, which are uh, small at the base of the otolithic membrane and then become enlarged as they get to the top. Uh, We believe that some of those larger otoconia then shed. Uh, There are other proteins which bind otoconia together like a a net. And of course, we know that they can be dislodged with trauma. Um, There are uh, some cells which are called dark cells within the labyrinth and which are conspicuously placed at the base of the crista of the posterior canal and of Mm -hmm. other um, ducts, but um, the posterior canal um, uh, crista is the crankcase of the inner ear. That's where a lot of otoconia, which are shed, end up. They do not cause that they are in, can be ingested by an active process of pinocytosis. Those cells have carbonic anhydrase, which can deionize the uh, break down the calcium carbonate um, and, and dispose of it. So whether we um, uh, we know in some experimental models, we can block calcium absorption and uh, the uh, animals will grow a mega lift. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we don't know if that happens in humans, whether otoconia production is altered by um, uh, by calcium metabol- by um, you know distortions of calcium metabolism or not. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to stay away from the vitamin D question. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.
3: I have a really weird question, and I've only ever seen this in the literature once. And this is when I was looking into some more information on persistent geotropic nystagmus with role testing. We typically don't see that. I've just saw my second case of this. Thank goodness she resolved um, fairly quickly. But in that study, it had one theory where the cubula was made lighter by degraded otoconia, kind of floating. In the endolymph, with which to me it sounds in theory could make up a, some sort of an excuse or some sort of an explanation. But you know, we're also used to thinking of otoconia being heavy, creating this cupula. thiasis, making a cupula heavy. Is there any way that explanation could have some merit to it? You know, what what would you say?
0: I, I think well, a point in that article was that that the. the, the the debris was so fine and so yeah. small that it moved at a very, very slow rate within the fluid. I think if it's the same study I'm thinking of, Daniel. So they were just talking about when odoconia becomes very, very minute, does it move through the canal at a very, very, very slow rate when it when you change head position?
3: Oh, so that would create the persistent response, and not that the cupula right. is deflected for a, a, however long you keep the patient
2: there. Well, there's another theory too, I mean, that that it's true. I mean, when you, uh, the otoconial otoconial settling can vary uh, depending on otoconia size from just a few seconds to up to 25 minutes. Mm. And this is the kind of phenomena that they're talking about. Uh, But uh, also imagine you have a mass of otoconia which has been um, uh, dissolving spontaneously, leaving behind this protein in the endolymph, now the endolymph has a different density, perhaps higher than the surrounding endolymph in the local environment. And you can have a relatively light cupola in that environment. Now, when we think about um, vestibular migraine, a lot of patients with vestibular migraine during an episode, they don't have rotational nystagmus, they have positional nystagmus. And, and a unique form of positional as nystagmus associated with these patients can be exactly what you're talking about, a persistent geotropic nystagmus that is reversible and that seems to indicate a light cupola. Hmm. And so this, can, this has been observed with um, any of the canals and is transient. So it resolves when you see the patient when they're asymptomatic next time the question is, can in the case of vestibular migraine, the extravasation of inflammatory mediators within the inner ear cause changes in the endolymph or around the, the crista uh, that can cause these kinds of local effects or not? Uh, and and, and what, what is really the explanation for this phenomenon? And uh, we just don't know because there's actually um, Uh, unfortunately, uh, very little RO1 grant activity around migraine mechanisms in the inner ear and the vestibular organs uh, themselves.
0: The protonaceous material that's that's residual after the calcium's degraded, what's like the specific gravity of that in comparison to, like I know, otoconia, I believe, has a specific gravity close to three times the endolymph but if it was just a protonaceous material moving, you have any idea
2: what? I don't know where it would be on the gravity scale. Yeah, but I'm thinking, yeah. but you uh, imagine you're you yeah, you're you know swimming swimming in a pond and you get into an algae and a, a cloud of algae. You have yeah. there's something different in the local yeah. environment. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Okay, on to our next question. Um, this might be a difficult one, but can you review the points? Uh, can you discuss the otolithic organs a little bit? I think that their structure is complex, um, especially their hair cell orientation and what its purpose is. Um, so could, could you describe um, the structure of you know, the utricle and the saccule and what the purpose is of that arrangement?
2: Um, sure. The um, uh, I think it's important to think uh, to understand first that um, evolutionarily uh, we started with a, a hair cell and that grew into a utricle. And that utricle was the orientation to gravity. It gave us an orientation for tilt. It was a mechanical uh, uh, to electrical transducer and it was useful for orientation in space, but also served a function in early hearing. After the utricle came the saccule and after, and of course these are linear accelerators that depend on the inertial um, mass of the otoconia to create deflections in hair cells. The Angular accelerometers of the semicircular canals came later. All of these organs sense extremely low frequencies of transduction. So movement of my head at a half of a hertz is extremely low frequency. Now, uh, phylogenetically, we have a structure called the crista neglecta, an additional crista. And over time, that crista became specialized and elongated to form the cochlea. It has a gelatinous membrane, the tectorial membrane. It has hair cells and it has, just like a crista, it is specialized for mechanical to electrical transduction, it is, specialized for the detection of an entirely different frequency range than the vestibular hair cells. Now, was it always uh, down to 20 hertz for the hearing hair cells, and then everything below 20 hertz is taken over by, we can't hear below 20 hertz, but we sense Mm -hmm. it as vibration, and therefore movement. Isn't there an overlap? Well, there is. The utricle has a striola running down the middle of it, and the hair cell kinocilia are back-to-back up against that striola. And uh, there are type 1 hair cells near the striola, and far away from the striola are the type 2 hair cells. The type 1 hair cells are will even in mammals today will phase lock onto frequencies up to 1500 hertz. Mm -hmm. That is to say that early animals could both sense tilt and acceleration and hear with their Mm utricle at least in a rudimentary way uh, because of Of neural mechanisms we call stochastic resonance, they were able to sense much higher vibrational patterns. And when you hit on the right frequency, the neural mechanisms would recognize that resonance pattern and say, Oh, this is a high frequency, this is a sound, in a sense. And you, the animal had much more um, environmental uh, awareness than you would think would be possible with only a utricle. So, why did Why not have a separate hearing and a separate balance organ? Uh, Well, evolutionarily, it was much more efficient to specialize a mechanical to electrical hair cell transduction system in an environment which already had the proper transcription factors in place for that adaptation than to evolve an entirely new um, organ. Hmm. So those are interesting things to talk, to think about.
0: Hmm. Yeah, definitely.
3: Now the otolith organs, they can, I mean, there's still some sense of hearing associated with that, which is why we can use vibration or sound for
2: a C-VIMP, correct? The, um, that is, uh, I, I'm wondering, are you really testing those I think that the, the reality is that we need a loud sound for a, say for a C C-vamp, which is stimulating the saccule. You are using a loud sound to uh, actually jar the entire utricular, uh, the, the saccular um, um, macula.
0: Okay.
2: And that in turn um, creates a relaxation potential in the entire ventral musculature. So, if you, um, I'm not sure that it's actually detecting the sound, but it's detecting a the sound is a proxy for motion. You could create a CVMP too by having a patient experience a drop of three inches. That's all of a sudden. Yeah. And if you if you fall, say through a trapdoor, you it's it's evolutionarily very advantageous to contract your ventral musculature so that you land in a crouched position and don't break your pelvis and your spine very cool. uh, and, and your legs. Interesting.
1: Oh, yeah, very interesting. How did you learn all this? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, we um, we think about these kinds of things. And uh, with the uh, rare people like you, who find them interesting? Whenever we're <laughs> <can. laughs>
0: uh, Thank you. Um, what are some changes that you see within the labyrinth in uh, individuals with
2: Meniere's syndrome? Um, I the only thing that I can uh, say is that patients with Meniere's syndrome, their labyrinthine anatomy is uh, normal from a bony standpoint. But of course, uh, the lesion that we see histologically in patients with Meniere's disease is that there is an accumulation of endolymph. And this, of course, causes distortions in the uh, membranous labyrinth. Now, let's take a look at what happens in Meniere's disease um, in the cochlear duct. The cochlear duct is the endolymph compartment that contains not the utricle hair cells or the semicircular canal crista hair cells, but the organ of Corti hair cells. It is narrow at the base and wide at the end. It's long like a baseball bat. And so at the handle of the baseball bat are the, um, is the narrowest portion of the cochlear duct, and that's the high frequency area. And the other end of the bat, is has a larger diameter and a large wider basilar membrane that vibrates and that's the low frequency area now if you're going to accumulate endolymph in a balloon that is the shape of a baseball bat which part of the bat blows up more does it blow up equally or does it blow up more in the handle or does it blow up more at the end it blows up more at the far end the fat part of the bat because there's more surface area of the membrane for the pre- inter- equal internal pressure to act against, and this causes a distortion of the basilar membrane and the function of the hearing in the low frequencies. Mm-hmm. So, when endolymph is accumulated a lot, it draw it distorts things. You get low frequency hearing loss, low frequency tinnitus, and when endolymph volumes fall, that reverses this is the fluctuating hearing loss of menieres disease now let's look at the what happens in the vestibular labyrinth the saccule is like a is like a balloon and it, it distor- is distorted much more than the utricle in endolymphatic hydrops uh, fred Linthicum at the house institute demonstrated uh, decades ago, that any patient with Meniere's disease who has a threshold elevation of 40 degrees or uh, 40 decibels or more in the low frequencies, their saccule is dilated so much that it's actually effacing the back surface of the foot plate of the stapes. Mm. And uh, this was a reason that you would never do a stapedectomy in a patient with Meniere's disease because you would open in the stapedectomy, the saccule, and kill the ear. Uh, The utricle does not seem to distort that much, but when you think of, because the wall of the utricle is thicker, the um, semicircular, let's think of a semicircular canal. The semicircular duct is long and thin, and so, but it has a large ampulla. So with endolymphatic hydrops, where does the extra swelling occur? at the ampulla. And um, in fact, some ampullary dilations are so great that it runs out of room. And then some portion of that blown up ampulla herniates out to fill other adjacent areas. So there are gross distortions of the vestibular labyrinth that are seen in patients with Meniere's disease that that, that basically fundamentally change uh, the way that the organ functions.
3: Would that change testing as well? So like your traditional calorics or anything along those lines, having distortions in the, the ducts like that
2: or the ampules? Uh, I don't think it would change caloric tests uh, because those depend more on heating and cooling of the neural elements than on actual um, fluid convection. Um, hmm. We learned that by doing calorics and microgravity in the space station Uh, but we, uh, uh, I I, I have to think about whether or not that would change, um, make changes in impulse testing that is observable in VHIT. Uh, And probably there are changes. You can see a lot with VHIT Hmm. if you know what to look for.
0: Very good, thank you. Mm-hmm. And well, just one to dovetail off that, do we have an idea what really causes a vertiginous attack from an anatomical standpoint with Meniere's?
2: Uh, no, we don't. Um, <laughs>
0: okay.
2: So, uh, uh, well, some people believe that there is a sudden break in the, you know, that you have an ink. Uh, there, there's a classic form of Meniere's disease, the Ler-Moyer's variant of Meniere's disease, in which the patient says, oh, the pressure is building up in my ear. The tinnitus is going up. The hearing is falling. And it's been going up for a couple of days. And then I had a big attack of, you know, for a couple of hours. And the ear feels great again. The hearing is back. The tinnitus is down. The fullness is gone. And that cycle repeats itself. People say, oh, well, that's because it's blowing up. It, uh, the uh, endolymph.'" attic sac or the endolymph compartment ruptures and uh, then everything resets. Uh, Most patients do not have uh, such a clean history in Meniere's disease. So um, and even in that patient, what is it that potentially causes the um, vertigo attack? It would be the release of potassium from the endolymph compartment around the vestibular nerve afferents, uh, causing a complete conduction block. So, um, and that after repair of the labyrinth and resetting of and, and reabsorption of that escaped potassium, uh, you would reestablish resting firing tone, and the attack would be over. So that sounds great, um, and it may happen in some patients. What is equally plausible is that the patient is experiencing a release of inflammatory peptides in the ear uh, from um, uh, uh, nerve fibers that are innervating blood vessels in the vestibular nerve, in the membranous labyrinth, in the vestibular end organs, causing various phenomena, um, not only conduction, Block changes in sensitivity, spontaneous firing, and um, uh, and maybe even uh, spreading neuronal depression in vestibular epithelium. If that could happen, the way that uh, spreading depress spreading uh, waves of depression over the cortex, causes auditory or visual aura in migraineurs, um, we don't really know what the intra-labyrinthine phenomena associated with migraine are. And um, uh, and these things may happen just in the vestibular nerve as well. We have traditionally always attributed a lot of these big episodes to a virus, to a vestibular neuritis. Um, But um, migraine seems to be extraordinarily common. And uh, there is a a uh, good um, s- rule of thumb, and that is that uh, uncommon manifestations of common problems are more common than uncommon, uh, than common manifestations of uncommon problems. And so it's hard to ignore migraine and its variations. All
0: right. You kind of already delved into my, what my next question was going to be, and that is in patients that have Acute vestibular syndrome, I guess, is what we're calling it now. When someone has a, a sudden vestibular loss, what do you do you think that the mechanism is always irritation to the vestibular nerve? Does it affect the end organ? When these patients we see with an acute vestibular loss, do we have a good idea mechanically of what's creating that presentation? No. And or do you think that there it's more commonly viral versus vascular versus other mechanisms other mechanisms that in, induce it?
2: Well, I think that um, epidemiologically, what we're probably seeing in most vestibular clinics uh, in 2021 is that about 50% or 55% of patients who walk through the door in the vestibular disorders clinic have vestibular migraine. About um, uh, 40% uh, have BPPV. About, um, uh, you know, 5% have Meniere's disease and a, uh, a, a handful of patients have vestibular neuritis. Mm-hmm. Once a patient with vestibular neuritis starts to come back, uh, and this is assuming that we don't have a long, a big stream of patients who have orthostasis and, you know, multisensory. Um, you know, um, uh, unsteadiness, uh, musculoskeletal and neuromuscular problems, um, along with central problems for after strokes and such, Who the patients who you see and help a lot. Though so we know that all of these patients are not discrete groups. They're overlapped. You know, about 30% of the patients with vestibular migraine we see have otolith disease as well. Um, about uh, uh, two thirds of the patients that we see who have Meniere's disease have migraine as well, and vestibular migraine components to their disease. So often we're treating their labyrinth and we're treating their brain. And so this is the reason that all of these percentages in the end start adding up to more than 100%. Um, I think uh, what the, the, there was a, an out now outdated term called uh, episodic dizziness of unknown etiology, um, and so these were patients who had what seemed like recurrent vestibular neuronitis. and I think that most uh, agree now that that was vestibular migraine that was just unrecognized. Those those patients have been shown to respond to preventive therapy for migraine. So what is it that causes a vestibular migraine attack? Um, Well, vestibular migraine is a spectrum of disease. There are patients who have symptoms that we know are happening in the inner ear, and a certain number of patients really have um, BPPV. Some of them develop Meniere's disease as a downstream uh, complication of, of migraine in the ear. Some of them have a, um, a vestibular weakness that we find on uh, VNG testing. And that's important Important because those patients who have a vestibular weakness are the ones who are still going to be in treatment six months later. Um, the patients who don't have a labyrinthine injury, they may, they're more likely to have disease that is just in the brain. They're more likely to have symptoms that you can distinguish from symptoms that come from the ear because the inner ear can't make their symptoms. These are patients who have symptoms like rocking or mm-hmm. symptoms like a disorientation in space, you know, the Alice in Wonderland syndrome where you feel like you're um, observing yourself sitting and talking in the room from a foot or two behind where you really are. That is a, a disorientation that happens in uh, combining information between the semicircular canals and the otolith organs at the level of the thalamus mm-hmm. the place where orientation in space becomes um, becomes a part of our real sensorium so uh, and some patients have have um, a lot going on in the inner ear some patients with vestibular migraine it's all going on in the in the brain either in the thalamus or in the in the central cerebellum and the uvula and, ver- uh, um, and nodule of the vermis of the cerebellum, mm-hmm. uh, which is the first place that otolith and canal inputs get combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and some have both. So um, it's, it's tempting always to pigeonhole someone into a particular diagnostic box, but many patients need to go in both, both uh, diagnostically and therapeutically.
3: I think that's a hugely important point and you make a lot of, I mean, Clinicians need to, to look at this and realize this is what the reality is, especially when it comes to physical therapy. By the time somebody reaches a physical therapist for vestibular rehab, I, I like to describe it as layers of issues. There are multiple things going on here, and that's why a lot of clinicians who do a weekend course or try to just pigeonhole a diagnosis into one specific diagnosis, they have troubles because they go to do an evaluation. They see some central signs. They see some peripheral signs. Things get a little bit mixed. Their history isn't straightforward, and that's because a lot of time, these patients have more than one thing going on because one can lead into the next, can lead into the next or happen Mm -hmm. concurrently. You can have a patient with their first episode of vestibular migraine issues while also having BV concurrently. Like it's complicated and it's important to know that there is more than just one thing out there, especially when you get a VNG report from uh, an ENT that wanted to see what was going on. You know, yes, they might have a unilateral weakness, but that also doesn't describe why they're having some other symptoms that are more central. So I think that's really hugely important to to make that point because it's very rarely just one thing. We always hope it's just one thing, but it's very rarely just one issue.
2: Yeah, and- sometimes we have an obvious area of dysfunction, excuse me, Abby, that, uh, and if you can, for example, eliminate otolith disease, that's an obvious part of a presentation, and then convince yourself when they return that otolith disease is no longer present, you can more clearly see and so can other collaborating clinicians, the remaining symptoms and possibly the root of the problem.
1: I was going to say, after discussing this, it makes me think a little bit clinically then how to approach patients, especially recurrent, do we need to broaden the scope a little bit education-wise and even intervention-wise? Do we need to, even if we think it's a more straightforward presentation, start talking about dietary changes and lifestyle modifications or tips and tricks to include in your life um, considering what you just said?
2: Um, Yes, 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 yes. Uh, The number of of clinicians who are available and really informed uh, uh, enough to uh, make uh, some considered recommendation about the treatment of balance disorders is woefully small, even with the, risk, with the uh, great rise in interest in balance disorders. Mm-hmm. The um, number of patients who are searching for a clinician to quarterback their vestibular migraine um, even after they have become convinced that this is what I have. They say, I found the diagnosis. I can't have it. I don't have anyone who's going to treat me for this. So um, is uh, that number of patients is too great. And um, I have found that out because uh, in COVID, we opened up telemedicine. And all of a sudden, patients who are all over the country and outside our borders have found that they have access uh, through telemedicine, uh, and, and in telemedicine, the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, we now are having to restrict all those patients who live within a few miles, and are just scared to come into the office, so that other patients who are farther away can have um, can have uh, treatment. And uh, the problem is that they don't have someone nearby, uh, so. There, there are sound therapies and sound ways to treat these, this population of vestibular migraine patients with lifestyle change, dietary change, and uh, non-prescribed supplements like riboflavin and magnesium, uh, which uh, ha- have similar evidence of efficacy as some of the prescribed medications. So I think that um, you have real potential to make a big impact on improving uh, patients' lives um, up to the point of not being able to prescribe. Mm-hmm. You I think know, I
0: to accept, oops, sorry, go ahead.
2: Oh, and just to, I mean, just in terms of the size of the army that's mm-hmm. out there potentially to treat these patients as uh, otolaryngologists, you know, we're only, uh, you know, about uh, 9,000 strong in the U.S. Well, you guys are 230,000 strong. Uh, And uh, probably those of you who are really interested in vestibular uh, problems and who have uh, to the point that you have um, purchased infrared lenses and interested in interpretation of eye movements and can um, make a a diagnosis of vestibular disorders better than most of your referring physicians, um, that number is as high as about 40,000, I think. Of therapists, but uh, those those people who I would consider really expert uh, is probably about, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe 20% of those because um, there's still a lot to learn. A lot of people have a lot to learn and they don't have the right um, mentoring relationships with their local ot- neurologist or neurotologist to really get on the same page. Um, but um, hopefully that's a direction that we'll go. I was going to say mentorship
3: is huge because you start to get infrared goggles involved and you start finding a whole host of odd things that you never learned in a weekend course or um, where you you know went to Emory and yeah. did their competency course and you know I rely on Jeff a lot. I'm constantly sending him videos or asking him questions and as well as uh, you know other descendants of Jeff Walters student clinical internships. Um, you know, reaching out to them, creating a small network because. You know, you are gonna see a lot of really weird stuff and you can't quite put your finger on it. And that's why we do podcasts like this. We put together case studies and we try to share the research that we found digging through weird cases that we've seen in the in the office. But you're right, having some sort of a person to go to and talk to and have them walk you through is a hard thing when everyone doesn't have as much time these days to dedicate to that. So we have to be thankful for our Jeff Walters and our colleagues like Abby and Kelly Keener and people like you who are willing to come on and talk about things like this because otherwise it's ridiculously hard to get your hands on this information because it is far and few between.
2: Yeah, I think it's a really really a potent experience to go and um, uh, spend uh, a day or even just a morning with uh, someone locally who is seeing dizzy patients um, so you can agree together on who who, what are the individual patients and diagnose patients with which diagnoses who are going to benefit from therapy and what kind of therapy and to have um, one another's phone number so that you can be uh, truly functioning as a team. Um, I think most uh, people I don't interact with the physical therapists uh, beyond signing off on orders that they get.
0: Abby, just to reinforce reinforce your point, uh, for example, when we see a subject who seems to have Meniere's disease, uh, we always educate them on BPPV, even if they don't have it yet, because they so commonly do get it and get confused downstream. So we often do that. Um, I had a recent series that's been odd of patients with acute unilateral sudden sensory neural hearing loss. That you take their history and it sounds a lot like from a dizzy perspective BPPV, and they've had very few signs of hypofunction and had active BPPV. So I guess the teaching point is is that you always have to stay open-minded to to there being you know multiple avenues to the patient's symptoms um, and don't get too locked in that when you have a patient with acute unilateral hearing loss, you're ready to see vestibular hypofunction, and you very well may, but in some cases, you may see that their predominant problem is secondary BPPV from the event that caused their hearing loss. So it is it is challenging because there's a lot of cross-pollination <laughs> when you see so, patients. And
2: Well, there is, too. And I think one of the things that's a real challenge for um, uh, most physical therapists is that they start to be the end point for all patients, uh, and with uh, vestibular disorders, even those who are least likely to benefit uh, from or tolerate therapy. So if you're um, they it, you have a great responsibility for them and after after a few weeks and you realize that every time they've seen you and you've been trying to help, they've been home with their head under a pillow for the about 18 hours afterward, you realize that, <laughs> that you, you may be able to help them, but that the dose of therapy that they can tolerate may be you know, six or eight minutes, and that mm. you have to adapt and assert um, with them, uh, on them the, the importance of perhaps of breaking up their therapy into small blocks and, and helping them to learn just how much they can insist without taking that big step backward. Uh, mm. And um, that way, uh, these patients who have uh, especially these most difficult vestibular migraine patients who also have labyrinthine dysfunction, they have difficulty compensating for that weakness. You know, so, you know, I tell my patients, you know, you ha- your brain has this big task of healing from a concussion or of uh, compensating for this big unilateral weakness, but you're, and it's like writing a term paper. It's a, an intense task but your migraine is like a roommate who wants to party all the time. (laughs) You've got to do something about your roommate. (laughs) That's a great analogy. I'm gonna gonna steal that one. Yeah, (laughs)
1: that was good. Side note, Dr. Teshido.
2: Yes. (laughs) Did
1: I get it this time? Absolutely. Um, Do you accept new patients now?
2: Yes, yes, of course of course we do. Um, So we identify, the way we serve them is that we uh, identify and then we treat them, uh, especially if they have their uh, balance disorders, if they have only, if their balance symptoms disappear and they're left with just residual headache, uh, then um, a physical therapist or a nurse practitioner in our, um, not a physical therapist, but a nurse practitioner, in our practice uh, takes over their management. Hmm. But um, I I, uh, I, think one of the services that uh, we need to provide is identifying for the patient, look, this is what you have, and this is where you're going to be able to put your energy productively uh, toward the resolution of your problem. Now, uh, I don't have time to be everybody's quarterback on that mm-hmm. project, but um, I can help them to find another quarterback who can do that. Uh, the, so, um, we currently have a line where we say, if, if your dizziness is gone and you still have migraine, but it's only headache, then we're going to have, we have, um, a nurse practitioner who can help you, um, uh, control your headache because if that gets out of control, then we know that you it's very likely your vestibular symptoms will come back.
0: All right. Let me ask one more anatomical question and we'll wrap up. Um, Aside from the well-known motor functions of gaze, stability, and balance with the vestibular system, are there any other lesser known functions
2: of the vestibular system that we should be aware of? Um, Well, I think, yes. uh, You know, we don't think about it uh, too much because we all are quite civilized and we We drive and walk and we go upstairs, but not very many of us are jumping uh, in our day-to-day environments and we don't fall. Uh, But um, think about dropping a cat, you know, holding a cat uh, back to the floor five feet up and dropping it, it will always land on its feet. And that's just testimony to the extraordinary uh, ability of the vestibular system to inform our our body posture in ways that prevent injury Uh, when we, uh, beyond just uh, protecting us from falling, uh, when we change our posture from supine to upright, we have big changes in uh, blood pressure and our um, uh, parasympathetic connections in our vestibular system, which give rise to some of our uh, nausea and uh, other uh, uh, symptoms, uh, also, uh, help to regulate our blood pressure went with those postural changes. And that's very important as we've gone, went from quadrupeds to bipeds. Um, we also, um, have, uh, the vestibular system has an unusual, uh, uh, background ability to inform our uh, you know what's called pathfinding. Uh, we don't think about it very much, mm-hmm. but if you are uh, thinking about walking into your house and the uh, lights are off, and for some reason you have to maybe the power is off and you have to make it all the way back up into your bedroom uh, to get to the flashlight that you keep in your bedside table, um, there you realize that you're missing all of the visual cues. You might know that you go to the base of the stairs and you follow the wall up the stairs and turn left, at the landing and go into the bedroom, but um, uh, uh, animals who navigate in total darkness actually remember vestibular sensations. And so if you labyrinthectomize a, a rat, it can see perfectly well. Um, but you send it into a dark tunnel and it can't find its nest again. Because its memory of its nest is based on a memory of vestibular um, sensations that are memorized in sequence uh, that help it navigate in total darkness. So pathfinding is something that is working in the background. For us, and it may be a uh, part of uh, direction sensing. Some people have a great sense of direction. You know, they're riding in the back seat of the car, and they have an idea of, oh yeah, I know we've been going east, and I think we're about ten miles away. And even though they've been reading in the back seat of the car, or not <laughs> paying, or, or not paying attention, some people have a terrible sense of direction. They have no idea where they are uh, or how far they are. Um, um, and of course. Uh, I think um, what that, what all of these uh, um, examples really point to, including vision and the ability to stabilize, you know, visual information on the fovea, the most, uh, uh, the most uh, detailed uh, area of the retina, you know, the 10 gigabyte camera is that um, it's the difference between balance and the vestibular system. So if you, if you mention balance, if you mention the vestibular system, people don't know what you're talking about. If you mention balance, mm-hmm. um, people will knowingly saying, "Oh yes, the, the inner ear, the inner ear." Well, um, but the vestibular system is really the integration of all of our visual, you know, uh, proprioceptive and mm-hmm. vestibular inputs, and their and the successful integration in the lower centers and in the higher centers of the brain. And I think that um, uh, there, that means that a defect in any part of that system can lead to problems. And so, and, and it's interesting, you know, we talk about motion sickness. You know, you can have motion sickness uh, from a mismatch between visual and vestibular information. You can have motion sickness from a mismatch between um, uh, visual and proprioceptive information. And you can have motion sickness symptoms from a mismatch between proprioceptive information and vestibular information. Um, and we see that in, you know, in space sickness. Astronauts go into space and uh, they have a mismatch between otolith and canal input information because they lose the gravitational vector. So space sickness is caused by their utricles floating. The inertia of the endolymph in the semicircular ducts hasn't changed in microgravity.
0: Do you think the purpose of that is to keep us out of those situations?
2: (laughs) We're not supposed to go to space. (laughs)
0: Well, no, but yeah, to be at, to uh, encourage a human to flee from a situation where there's sensory mismatch—do you think that's the purpose of the nausea? Like a protective response? Get me out of here! I don't feel well. Um, come on! I I'm I'm trying to sell it.
3: That <laughs> if you is ask
2: a, me. That's like the you best don't have like come. you
3: don't have gills, so you shouldn't be living on a boat in
2: water. Yeah, you need to have yeah. a glass of wine. Humans don't survive
0: that. well in water. I, yeah, I, I need, need water. a
2: couple of glasses of wine to uh, really delve into this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an interesting, interesting notion. Some people um, uh, uh, feel that uh, they, they're interested in the notion that toxicity and poisons, most poisons, cause some dizziness and that, that causes then emesis. Uh, so, and that the vestibular system is protective in a, in a functional, connect, that, that, that the connections of the, the vestibular system are useful in, in a survival Way and that way as well. But yeah, that's an interesting notion, Jeff. I'm going to think about that. That's the kind of thing I like to think about.
1: We can make the couple glasses of wine happen for next episode, too. (laughs)
2: Uh, That'd be my pleasure.
3: Uh, Thank you, you so much
1: yeah, thank you both so much for joining us today and also we want to give you both some time to talk about other ventures that you have going on that might be helpful to some of our audience uh,
0: i can go first uh, on i have a new course series on MedBridge. if anyone is interested it's like a 10 course part series that actually danielle and michael took uh, part in so um i'd encourage you there if you have an interest in, in learning and wanted to go through it in an organized manner.
2: And I have a, um, if you haven't seen it, um, on bppvviewer, uh, dot com, you can download a, um, simulation tool for BPPV. That is, um, a, a simple, uh, tool. I'm going to share my screen. Uh, so those of you who are watching can see what it looks like. It's a, rather uh, simple um, device. You can put an otolith anywhere you want. You can uh, turn the labyrinth and the head uh, in any position. You can turn gravity on and see what happens to otoliths in any loaded position. And uh, communicate with friends, make illustrations, make teaching diagrams for your clinic, um, and it's free. So
1: uh, cool. Nice. And yeah, really cool.
2: And finally, um, uh, we have, I'm working on some models uh, and uh, posters. So we have, uh, uh, in the next year or so, uh, these labyrinth models, which have the utricle and the semicircular ducts will be uh, available. And these will uh, will be useful for visualizing BPPV. Uh, There are also, um, I'm working on a, a wall poster of BPPV. And here's a, you know, just, I'm going to stand up and show a prototype of it. And this is just a, an outline of, of maneuvers that can be used to treat a patient with BPPV. So wouldn't it be great if you had a nice um, outline of the diagnostic maneuvers of all of the different types of maneuvers that could be useful in a patient with posterior canalithiasis and lateral canalithiasis and anterior canalithiasis because individual patients have limitations of motion and um, we should have um, at our fingertips uh, strategies that allow us to use, um, to to work around uh, individual uh, conformational difficulties.
3: That's a great visual to uh, kind of prove the point that there's more than just an Epley maneuver to fix BPV
2: a lot more than that and um, uh, I think uh, we're trying to perfect the visual language there and then that's going to be um, widely available and affordable.
3: Well, definitely let us know where we can find those in the future, shoot us an email so that we can put them up on our website. We can make it available on our social media because we are constantly looking for educational materials for both clinicians and patients. And that would be absolutely invaluable, I think. So keep us updated on when we can get our hands on those because that would be amazing. Oh, and also be sure to check out Dr. Tayshido's YouTube videos. He's got a lot of great educational YouTube videos. I constantly use them for my patients, especially um, one of his recent interviews for the Migraine World Summit, where he talks about vestibular migraine. You are an excellent teacher, it's amazing. It's just so great. Um, be sure to check out all of his stuff, all of Jeff's stuff, and thanks again for sticking with us for Talk to You to Me. We'll talk to you guys next time.
2: Thank you, Abby. Thank you, Danielle, and thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure to be here, and I, um, uh, I'm, I'm, a- I'm. I'm flattered for the interest, and uh, I'm glad that this information is useful to so many of you. Thank you all. much, thanks. Take take care.
3: If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts.
1: Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.